for this week, the, the world experienced what amounted to a global meltdown. For over five hours Monday, Facebook and its family of apps, Instagram and WhatsApp, all went offline, leaving its more than 3.5 billion users, almost half the world's population, in a frenzy. The next day, uh, Facebook's vice president of infrastructure explained what happened. There was a complete disconnect of server connections between Facebook's data center and uh, the company's uh, internet connections and the global internet connection. With the data, data centers offline, the company's servers that manage its internet addresses were unavailable, making it impossible for the rest of the internet to find their servers and for all the users around the world to find their friends. I think it goes to show just how important servers are. That's the thing we'll see emphasized in our passage this morning as we look at servers. Not digital servers that impact internet operations, but deacon servers who impact the local church. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we'll look at verses 8 through 13. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats, under the seats, you can find it on page 992. 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The Apostle Paul says this, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, and not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here's what I think is the main idea of these few verses, verses 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy 3. Deacons are vital to the life of the church as they model Christ in their ministry of service. Deacons are vital to the life of the church as they model Christ in their ministry of service. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts around three points. First, we'll see the role of a deacon. We see that in verse 8, and then we'll, we'll jump to another passage. Uh, number two, the requirements of a deacon. We see that also in verse 8 and stretching through verse 12. And then number three, the rewards of a deacon. We see that in verse 13. So three points. Number one, the role of a deacon. Number two, the requirements of a deacon. And number three, the rewards of a deacon. First, the role of a deacon. Now just notice here that this is a separate office in the church that we're introduced to, but with similar qualifications as we saw last week. And last week, we saw Paul talk about the office of overseer, of pastor or elder, all the same office. And he gave the qualities that should mark men that serve in that role. Well, now Paul moves to a different role, the office of deacon. So just up front here, I, I think it's, it's, it's helpful for us to be reminded of God's care for us. 
his care in that he has not left us without a guide. We're not just left here as followers of Jesus trying to figure out life on our own. The Lord has sent his spirit as he promised, who indwelt men, who wrote the words written in this book, the Bible, to instruct us how to live in this world and how to live as a church, down to the very way our churches should be structured. I hope you see that. I mean, here we are, 2,000 years after this book was written, with these same offices in our church, the office of pastor or elder, and the office of deacon. And why? Not because we're creative. Not because people in the church need something to keep them busy. Not because it's the Baptist way, but because it's the biblical way. We affirm in Article 13 of our Statement of Faith that we believe that the only scriptural offices in a church are bishops or pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and to Titus. That's not to say that a church can't have other offices like a treasurer or a clerk, but that the only ones that scripture demands are these. This book, my friends, guides us. The Bible guides us down to the very polity, the very structure of our church. There are pastors and deacons, two distinct offices who serve harmoniously. Just as Paul in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, talked about men and women in the church serving distinctly but harmoniously. What's the difference between pastors and deacons? Well, pastors are charged with teaching the church and leading the church, while deacons are charged with serving the church. We'll note that again shortly when we talk about deacon requirements. But just in the very titles of the offices, I think we see the distinctions. I mean, the, the term Paul used to describe the office of pastor up in verse 1, overseer, gives us a clue to what the role involves watching over the church, having authority over the church. Well, in the same way, the term for this second office, deacon, alludes to what the role involves, namely service. The very word for deacon, diakonos, simply means servant. In the Greek culture in which the New Testament was written. The idea of servanthood was shameful, despicable, lowly. The Greeks valued ruling over others, not serving them. But in the Bible, things get turned upside down. You ever notice how true that is in the scriptures? They present a countercultural understanding of life. The world tells you that only the strong survive, that you've got to take what you want. But the scriptures tell us that the meek shall inherit the earth. The world tells you that you should boast in your accomplishments, boast in your riches, boast in your self-sufficiency to achieve the American dream. But the scriptures tell us that the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. The world looks down on servanthood. I mean, just think of our attitudes towards garbage collectors, towards janitors, towards waiters. But the scriptures lift service up, exalt servants. I mean, the Old Testament describes such heroes of the faith as Abraham and Moses, Joshua and David with this high praise. They were servants of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, the Lord himself lifts the eyes of his people Israel off the nations surrounding them, off the idols of the nations that were around them. 
he lifts them to the one and only hope of the world whom he will send. And he says to them, behold, my servants. Eleven chapters later in Isaiah chapter 53, we learn of the future Messiah who would bring hope and salvation to sinners. Described in terms of a suffering servant who will take the sins of many upon himself die in our place that we might be saved. In the New Testament, that Messiah is revealed as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who left his throne in heaven and came to earth as a man. And for what purpose? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. So we are not to think of this office here as worthless or unimportant. Something to look down upon. All they do is serve. Service is a high calling. Service is what it means to be a Christian. We are all enlisted in the service of Christ. Far better to be a servant for a day in the courts of King Jesus than a king in the kingdom of this world. We serve to make him known and to make mature disciples of him. And part of how we do that is by all of us serving one another. But here we see a specific office in the church specifically dedicated to this function of serving the local body. And that service, again, is not extra or optional, but vital. I mean, again, just take notice that the Lord, in establishing his church, cares what it looks like. And in his sovereign wisdom, he instructs us here through the apostle how it should be organized with elders and deacons. We see the same office or structure briefly mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, both present in the church, and not by human wisdom or ingenuity, and not by expediency or circumstance, but by divine design and instruction. Deacons are needed to serve the body. They are essential workers. I think we see that in a sort of prototype in Acts chapter 6 of what would later become the office of deacon. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me for a minute as, as I think this passage is instructive for what deacons do. Acts chapter 6. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you can find it on page 914. Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verses uh, 1 through 7, or just comment on verses 1 through 7. All right, Acts is right after the book of John. All right, Acts 6, and, and we see here in this passage that there's a problem in the first church, the church at Jerusalem. Namely, verse 1 tells us that the widows of the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, while the widows of the Hebrews were having their needs met. And it caused conflict. Verse 1 says there was a complaint that arose about it. It's a moment of dispute that could turn into a deeply divisive issue in the church. And so who steps in? Well, it's who you'd expect. The leaders in the church, here in the beginning era of the church, is the apostles. You see that in verse 2 as they refer to as the twelve. But how they step in is unexpected. They don't do the work needed to remedy the problem, but recommend that others act in specific ways to free them up to lead the church in the ways the Lord has called them to. They say in verses 2 and 3 here, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. As apostles, as leaders of the church, their priority was the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. They could not, should not neglect the word. But neither did they want to neglect the widows that were being overlooked. Their solution? To call the church to appoint seven men to serve the needs of the widows. And notice that term at the end of verse 2. To serve. It's the verb form of the same root word found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, for deacons, diakonos. These men's service met a specific need in the church. Their service prevented any further fallout in the church. It kept division from occurring. And their service freed up the apostles to carry out their primary responsibilities, prayer and preaching. And what was the result of their service? The church flourished. Look at verse 7. After this potential threat to the church that was resolved by these men's service, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That didn't just magically happen. It happened through their service. As they fulfilled their distinct role in serving, in deaconing the widows, it freed the apostles to fulfill their distinct role of prayerfully preparing and preaching the word. And as a result, the word of God increased and the disciples multiplied. Now, again, I don't think this passage is meant to be fully prescriptive, that we must model it exactly. So, for instance, I don't think it needs to be seven men. I don't think the only service is that of serving food to widows. All right, so we need to be careful that we don't carry over every aspect of this. But I do think it's prototypical. It's instructive for what later develops. The office of apostle passes away in the church. And the office of pastor is instituted with the same primary function of leading the church and teaching the church. We talked about that last week. And this act of service that we see exemplified in Acts chapter 6 explicitly becomes an office, an official office of servant, of deacon, and with the same function, to serve in specific ways to promote unity and prevent discord in the church, to meet needs in the church, and to free up pastors to focus on the ministry of the word. Two offices, two roles. Pastors, elders teach and lead. Deacons serve and facilitate. And both for the health and flourishing of the church. So again, that's why we are structured the way that we are. As a pastor, I do not think it's beneath me to serve. I'm just as fine behind a broom as behind a pulpit. All of us, in a very real way, are called to serve. But the primary way I'm called to serve is through the proclamation of the word. So the bulk of my time each week is spent prayerfully preparing to teach and to preach the word. As other elders join me in this office over the years, Lord willing, that will be our primary calling to shepherd you through the ministry of word and prayer as your leaders. And so that means that necessarily we won't have time and space to give to all the many other needs that may arise in the church. But that's why we have deacons who can and who do. That's why we have deacons tasked to address specific areas of need in our church. Right now, our brother Joe in music ministry and Sorrell in children's ministry. And there are other ways that so many of you are already deaconing, serving faithfully without the title. Whether that's Kevin and Colette with finances or the West and the building or others of you working on various projects or, or working behind the scenes to coordinate events. 
Thank you all for faithfully doing that. Thank you for bearing with us and being patient as there are so many other areas that we need more service. Thank you for not expecting me as your pastor to personally do it all, but rather understanding the crucial difference in the roles of pastors and deacons, but also the crucial need for both. The office of deacon is a gift to serve the church under the authority and direction of the elders in concrete and practical ways for the good of the whole body. And again, service is not something devalued, but elevated in the Bible. And this office of servant, highly valued. And so while you might think just anybody can serve, anybody can be a deacon, the scripture says that a person must meet certain requirements to serve in this esteemed office. Which leads to point number two, the requirements of a deacon. Number two, the requirements of a deacon. Now again, from that Acts 6 passage, you, you see that certain requirements needed to be met for the people raised up to serve. They were to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. And as this prototype of servants becomes more developed and formalized into the office of deacon, we see similar qualifications listed in our passage. So if you haven't already, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. And just as Paul previously listed qualifications needed for someone to serve as an elder, so he does the same for the office of deacon. And just as with elders, the first set of qualifications that he lays out have to do with the deacon's character. Character is important. Paul says in verse 8, deacons likewise, or in the same way as elders, must have these certain character qualities. First, they must be dignified. They must be men worthy of respect, live honorable lives. These aren't people who are flippant, but who have some weightiness to them. I mean, you ever met folks who, who just aren't serious about anything? There's nothing really to them. But deacons are to be reverent people, have some focus in life, in serving God and serving his church. They should be people that others respect. And Paul then lists some qualities that would tarnish respectability that would prevent someone from being dignified. From this positive charge that deacons must be dignified, he moves to what a dignified man must not be. He must not be double-tongued. A deacon can't be the kind of person who says one thing to one person and another thing to another person. We have a phrase for that kind of thing, a two-faced. Well, depending on where you are, two-faced it is. There should be sincerity in their speech. They should be known for trustworthiness with their words. You notice how often speech comes up in the scriptures as one of the greatest temptations to sin? As one of the most obvious areas where a lack of godly self-control exists? James says, if someone can bridle the tongue, they can bridle the whole body. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, when words are many, sin is not lacking. Saints, consider that what comes out of your mouth manifests your spiritual maturity. That's to say, you may think you're more spiritually mature, more godly than you actually are. What story do your words tell? Is there control over the number of words you speak? Is there control over the nature of the words you speak? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say is a display of who you are. So if you're double-tongued, saying one thing to please one group and another to please another group, it reveals a deeper heart problem. You fear man more than you fear God. You are so concerned about 
people's opinions that you are willing to say anything to keep or to gain their approval. Friends, that can be disastrous in a church. It often puts you in the position of having to tear down another person, tear down another group, tear down another viewpoint, and often in the strongest terms in order to win allies and affirmation of the person you're currently addressing. And then to play that game all over again when the characters change or when you're in a different setting. That should not be so for deacons. They must have integrity in their speech, must not be double-tongued. Paul says they, they must not be addicted to much wine either. Notice he doesn't say no wine. I think Christians can sometimes make absolutes where the Bible doesn't make absolutes. I mean, we see as we continue studying this book later in chapter 5 that Paul encourages Timothy to drink a little wine. So the prohibition here is not wine, but the excessive consumption of it. It's the same prohibition Paul gave concerning elders up in verse 3, not to be drunkards. Drunkenness has been a problem for a long time. Throughout history, people have abused alcohol. Remember Noah way back in Genesis, sinning by getting drunk. It seems to have been an issue here in the Ephesian culture and a temptation in the Ephesian church. And it continues to be so today. So let's just camp out here for a minute because I don't want these words to fall lightly on any of us. Why do people get drunk? Often it's to escape some reality. Perhaps your job is a blower. Your kids are a headache. Your spouse is a seeming constant nuisance. Life is hard. And so you find an outlet in liquor or wine. When you're filled up with alcohol, you can let go of all of life's worries. Or perhaps getting drunk makes you the you you wish you were. More personable more vocal, more assertive. But you know, it's all just an illusion. It doesn't last. There's no real hope, no real help at the bottom of a bottle. God is our only refuge. And every other supposed source of security or satisfaction only proves itself to be insufficient over time and plunges you deeper into despair. You don't need a drink. Don't need to get drunk. We need the Lord. So friends, feel free as the Lord gives you freedom to enjoy wine, to enjoy drinks as gifts from God. But be careful not to use them as replacements for God. If you drink, do you have a limit on how much you drink? Are you mindful of how often you drink? Are you able to abstain from alcohol? Are you addicted to much wine? If so, tell somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to another member here. Let me be super clear here. We are not trying to be a church that just throws darts at sins and shames sinners. We want to be a church where we can openly confess our sins and help one another walk in repentance. Friends, there's no sin, no struggle too shameful to bring to the Lord. And I pray there's no sin, no struggle too shameful to bring to the Lord's people. If drunkenness is something you struggle with, invite other brothers and sisters into the struggle with you to help you fight, to find victory through the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lastly, in verse 8, Paul says, a deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. 
They must be content with what the Lord has given them and, and not lust after more, often in underhanded ways. Just as with elders, they must not be primarily motivated by money in doing ministry. Now, now this isn't explicit in the text. But in looking at these first few qualities of what a deacon should not be, which again shouldn't just describe those holding the office of deacon, but really all Christians in general, all of us should be marked by these things, just deacons here explicitly. But in looking at these things we just talked about, of watching what you say, being sober, being content, not being double-tongued, not being drunk, not being greedy. Does it strike you that Jesus was able to exemplify these things perfectly? I mean, the scriptures say he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted to speak sideways, to talk behind folks' back. He was tempted to use his words as weapons to tear people down. He was tempted to slander and to gossip. I mean, he was the son of man who knew what people thought. He could have easily dished all the dirt out there and smeared their names through the mud. And yet, he did not sin in his speech, not even one time. He never cursed, never denigrated people, never gossiped, and neither was he ever drunk. And not because he was a social hermit, not because he was a recluse. I mean, we see in the Gospels Jesus out and about. He attended weddings and festivals, dinner parties at people's homes. He partook of wine, but never to the point of getting tipsy or drunk. He didn't want anything deluding his senses, altering his mindset, knocking him off course of his intention to drink. Not all the wine there was, but all the wrath that was reserved for us. He did ministry. The Gospel of Luke tells us, supported at least partly by the financial giving of several wealthy women. But he never exploited them for more. Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he bowed down and worshipped him. But he was not greedy for dishonest gain. He was willing to suffer the loss of life now for the rich reward of returning to his heavenly kingdom victorious later. And he did it all for us. You know, we often talk about Jesus dying for us, but don't miss the fact that Jesus lived for us. He resisted every temptation and lived the perfect life to God that we should have lived. He lived a life of perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. But then he laid down his life and he died for us in our place for our sins so that we, who by nature are unrighteous, could be declared righteous. Not based on our works, but based on his work for us. Jesus died and rose from the grave. And he calls us all now to turn from our sins and to trust in him for salvation. And not simply to give us the position of being saved, but also giving us the power that comes as a result of salvation. He sent his spirit to live inside of us so that by his power, we might live the kind of dignified, sincere, sober, content lives that he calls all of us to, and deacons in particular in verse 8. In verse 9, we see Paul shift his focus just a bit. He talks not only about a deacon's character, but a deacon's convictions, what they must believe. Paul says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery here doesn't refer to a genre of literature, nor does it refer to something mysterious or secret. A mystery, as Paul so often uses it in his writings, is a technical term referring to something that was once concealed, but that has now been revealed. Specifically, it refers to God's once concealed plan of salvation that has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So mystery of the faith here is just shorthand for the gospel. Deacons are not just to be doers. Deacons are to be doctrinal. They're not just people tasked with duties and who demonstrate godly character. They're people devoted to the Lord. People who know the gospel and love the gospel and hold the gospel dearly. Now, notice here that deacons are charged with holding the gospel, but not teaching the gospel. Again, we've noted one of the primary differences between the offices of elder and deacon is that elders are charged with the authoritative teaching of the church and leading the church, while deacons are charged with serving the church. So you'll notice that unlike in the elder qualifications, there is not a requirement for deacons to be able to teach. That's not part of their official functions, their official duties. But also notice here that even though teaching and preaching the gospel is not part of their official job, that they should nonetheless have a solid grasp of the gospel. I think it shows us here that just because we're not tasked with teaching doesn't mean we get a pass on learning, get a pass on, on knowing, get a pass on cherishing the truth. Theology is not solely for teaching. All of God's people should be students of the gospel, should be students of the Bible, should know and cherish and love the gospel. So do you know the good news about Jesus? Are you able to articulate it clearly? Or could you explain the gospel to a five-year-old, to a 14-year-old, to a 40-year-old businessman, or to a 75-year-old grandmother? Could you tell them about the God who was holy and who loved me, who made everyone in his image to obey him and to honor him? But that we, as his image bearers, have rebelled against God, have turned away from him, and have sinned against, against, sinned against him. That our sin has earned us God's just punishment. That we are all headed to hell, but that God in his love has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to take our punishment so that we could be saved if we turn from our sins and put our trust in him forever. Can you tell someone the good news about Jesus? Have you believed it and, and loved it yourself? Deacons should hold and cherish the gospel and do so with a clear conscience, without doubting in their hearts and without being condemned by a guilty conscience because how they behave doesn't match up with what they say they believe. Jesus is Lord should flow from their lips to their lives. So this is important. Because sometimes I think what we see in churches is that because deacons are tasked with service, that churches sometimes just put anyone up in the office to fill gaps. They put people in the position because they're good with their hands and so can easily serve to fix the building. Or they're good with finances and so can easily serve to fix the budgets. But Paul says that deacons need to have good character and gospel convictions. They must have their hearts fixed on Jesus, which shows over time. Paul says in verse 11 that deacons must be tested first to prove, to show the good character and gospel convictions required. And then after testing, they should serve as deacons. If their conduct, if their lives are blameless or above reproach. So friends, the scriptures just don't have a concept of putting a person in a position and then seeing what kind of person they are. Rather, the scriptures assume that both with elders and deacons, that a person should be functioning informally how you think they would function formally. That is, an eldering should already be eldering in the congregation, teaching, caring for people, counseling people, before a title is given. Deacons should be deaconing 
serving in the congregation, helping in various ways, demonstrating godliness without the title of deacon. You don't get a title and suddenly become something you're not. A title just formally recognizes what you've already been doing and commends you and your work to the congregation in an official capacity. So who are those people in our church already faithfully and joyfully serving? Whose lives and whose lips commend the gospel? Those are the people whom the Lord may be calling us as a church to officially recognize as deacons. Paul closes this list of deacon requirements by, again, focusing on character. In verse 11, the character of women is highlighted, which we'll come back to in a minute. And in verse 12, the character of a deacon is highlighted in his home life. Is he faithful? A a one-woman man? Is is he managing his household well? It's the same qualification we saw for elders up in verse 4. But notice that while it's a similar qualification, the reason that's given for elders up in verse 5 is missing here. For elders, it was because they needed to care for God's church. And their care for their families was proving ground. But that qualification is missing here. I think intentionally to highlight, yes, deacons should be good family men, should care for their families, but they are not responsible in the same way that elders are to care for and lead the church. I think Paul means to make that clear in some of the omissions that we see here in these deacon qualifications. And I think those points of omission are important of what deacons are called to do and what deacons are not called to do as it relates to verse 11. Because in verse 11, we see some specific qualifications given to women in either an official capacity or an unofficial capacity. And part of how you might understand whether it's an official or unofficial capacity is how you understand what deacons are responsible for. So look at verse 11. Paul says their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled and discussions have been had over whether this verse refers to deacons' wives or female deacons or deaconesses. And let me just say up front, this is not a first-level issue. It's not something that should divide churches, divide churches or cause folks to question another's allegiance to Jesus. It's not at the level of, of trusting the gospel or not, of being faithful to the scriptures or being heretical. That's important to note, I think, because sometimes people who make any disagreements, who have any disagreements in the interpretation of scriptures, make it seem like it's an abandonment of Jesus Christ altogether. All right, that's not the case here. Now, your initial thought might be this, this verse is actually really clear. I mean, what's the discussion about? It says their wives, obviously referring to deacons' wives. The issue is that's not what the original Greek says. The Greek word translated wives here, gunikos, can mean either women or wives. Also, in the original, there is no possessive pronoun. I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit here, but stay with me. So so the word there does not appear in the Greek. So a translation like the NASB, which tends to be even more literal than the ESV, simply translates verse 11, women likewise must be dignified, etc. I think that's a better translation. I think the ESV over-translates this verse to assume meaning. Now, among those who think this verse refers to deacons' wives, they they note a few things. For one, the word translated wives here is also the same word Paul uses in verse 12, where clearly the word is referring to a spouse, a wife. Secondly, if Paul were meaning to refer to female deacons in verse 11, then why go back to the qualification for deacons in verse 12, where clearly the deacons in view are men, as they must be husbands of one wife or one woman? 
it would be strange and unnatural for Paul to interrupt the discussion about deacons, address female deacons, and then go back to addressing deacons. Third, they say, Paul doesn't call these women deacons. Right? He just calls them women or, or wives. Fourth, given the nature of a deacon's responsibility to care for the practical needs of a church, it would probably, some say, put them in close proximity to members. And it would only seem right and practical for their wives to help them in their roles. And so it's fitting for Paul to include some character qualities that their wives also needed to exhibit. A fifth, a deacon's role has some authority. And Paul forbids a woman from having authority over a man in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So based on these factors, many faithful brothers and sisters over time have concluded that the office of deacon is reserved only for men. But I don't think that's the right position. I'm not alone here. Many other faithful brothers and sisters over the history of the last 2,000 years of the church have held that the Bible allows for women to serve in the office of deacon. And let me explain why, and, and hopefully in doing so, address some of the, the alternate views of the, of the alternate position. For one, there is no inherent authority in the office of deacon. The office is specifically an office of service to the church, not authoritative teaching or leading over the church. So, yes, Paul is clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But he's also clear about the one office that possesses that teaching and authoritative function, the office of elder. And so he immediately follows the command not to let a woman to have authority or teach over a man, with the qualifications for the office of elder. And in those qualifications, list requirements for elders to teach and to lead the church. Requirements that are not present in the office of deacon. So Paul absolutely prohibits a sister from serving as an elder or pastor, but he does not prohibit a sister from serving as a deacon. One is authoritative in function, the other is not. And I think that brings up an important principle that we need to follow as a church. We cannot permit what God prohibits, but we also should not prohibit what God permits. We cannot permit what God prohibits. We can't say yes to what God says no to. So we cannot appoint female pastors. We cannot allow gay marriage. We cannot accept men to be women or women to be men. God has said no to those things. And we are not smarter than God. Right? We cannot permit what God prohibits. But we also should not prohibit what God permits. We should not say no to what God says yes to just because that's the way we've always done things, or because that's what we're comfortable with, or because we fear rocking the boat. As here, if God allows for sisters to serve in the office of deacon, we should allow the same. A, a few more reasons here. Now, some say that the, given the nature of the deacon's work, that it makes sense for his wife to be closely involved in, in the work and that's for qualifications to be met by her. But that's an assumption. You don't see that anywhere in the text, that a deacon's wife would be working in close proximity. If anything, it seems that an elder's wife would have closer proximity to his work. I mean, lift your eyes quickly up to verse 2. And you see that an elder must be hospitable. But that's not explicitly stated as a requirement for a deacon. It seems that an elder's home is to be open, perhaps more than the other members of the church, for ministry to others. As such, his wife would be more highly involved in portions of his ministry. And yet, 
there is no requirement for elders' wives listed. I mean, the office of elder is in function and in authority a higher office than the office of deacon. And yet no requirements for his wife. It would be highly strange for deacon's wives to need to be of a certain character, but not elders' wives. The third, Paul lists, Paul's listings of qualifications in this section are tied specifically to specific offices, to elders and deacons. He's not talking about spouses. All right, that seems to continue even in verse 11. An office is in view. Fourth, notice the language in verse 11 confirming that an office is in view. The word likewise is used to connote that in the same way as certain male deacons needed to meet certain qualifications, so female deacons or deaconesses likewise must meet these standards. It's the same way Paul uses the word likewise in verse 8. Just as the office of elder needed to have certain qualities, likewise, right? In the same way, so the office of deacon. If Paul were jumping away from an office in verse 11, it would seem he would use different language. Notice also that the qualifications listed in verse 11 are simply summarized and shortened qualifications required of deacons. Just as male deacons in verse 8 need to be dignified, so women in verse 11 must be dignified. Just as male deacons in verse 8 must not be double-tongued, so women in verse 11 must not be slanderers. Just as male deacons in verse 8 must not be addicted to much wine, so female deacons in verse 11 must be sober-minded. Just as male deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain in verse 8 and must be the husband of one wife in verse 12. In other words, they must be faithful in their finances and in their marriages. So women at the end of verse 11 must be faithful in all things. In other words, the women in verse 11 have to meet the same qualifications as the deacons serving in an official capacity throughout this passage. Why? It seems they serve an official capacity as well as female deacons or deaconesses. Now, don't worry about writing all this down. I'm a, if y'all want, I can send y'all this manuscript or, or, or give you these things at a later time, all right? Fifth, some say, why would Paul jump from male deacons in verses 8 through 10 to female deacons in verse 11 back to male deacons in verse 12? I don't know. I was not in Paul's mind. It seems that Paul bookends requirements for male deacons in verses 8 and 12 and then inserts requirements for female deacons in verse 11. But I don't think that should dissuade us from this, this viewpoint. Because however you understand these verses... Paul jumps off course. I mean, you could easily ask the same kind of question. Why would Paul go from discussing the office of deacon in verses 8 through 10, then jump to their spouses in verse 11, then jump back to the office of deacon in verse 12? Right? So either way, Paul is jumping, right? So you've got to make a determination. And lastly, while information on the formal office of deacon is sparse in the scriptures, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, we see a biblical example, I think, of a female deacon. There, Paul says to the Roman church, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diakonos, a deacon of the church at Syncre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Church historian Michael Spiegel explains, whenever the Greek phrase, a blank of the church, is used in the New Testament and in earliest Christian literature, the personal designation refers to an office, not to a generic function. So, so when Phoebe is called a servant of the church, every time that kind of uh, wording is used in the New Testament and in earliest Christian writings, it always refers not to a function like I'm serving, but to an office. 
So Paul referring to Phoebe as a servant of the church is not just generically saying that she serves the church, but that she serves in a specific way, in the specific office of deacon, in a specific church, the church at Syncre. He commends her as a highly capable and committed servant or deacon. All these reasons lead me to believe that God has designed this office of deacon, this office of servanthood to be occupied by both men and women who demonstrate godly character and gospel convictions, who meet the qualifications outlined in this verse, for these verses for the good of the local church. Now, we have, haven't had female deacons as, as, at least as long as I've been here, all right, which was started in 2009. And part of that is because our church, like many other Baptist churches throughout the years, had a structure where the deacons served as de facto elders. There'd be one senior pastor and a board of deacons, and the deacons often had the responsibility and the authority to hire and fire even the pastor, right, to make decisions on the budget, to lead the church, right, in a way that I think the New Testament calls for the board of elders to carry out. And so over the last eight years, what we've done here as a church is to change our structure, to change our policy so that the board of pastors are the one who lead the church. And the deacons don't meet as an organized board to make church-wide decisions of authority, but serve in unique and needed ways for the health of our body. Right. And so I think the Bible is calling us right, to recognize sisters for who God has called them to be. Brothers and sisters, don't allow the Bible. Right. Uh, to, to cause us to, to think that women can only not be something. Friends, we want to use the Bible to showcase all the ways that the Lord has gifted our sisters to do something in our local churches. Sisters, I hope you're encouraged. I'm not saying you have to serve in this office, but thank you for the way you've already, already served our church. And we as a church want to be biblical and recognize that service in official ways as the Lord gives us wisdom and time. Third and final point, and the shortest point. We see the rewards of a deacon. Point number three, the rewards of a deacon. Now Paul lists two rewards specifically. Now look at verse 13. The first reward, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. All right, the, the service they provide to the body brings recognition from the body. They are respected for their work, commended for their work. Right? The body sees these uh, saints serving and recognizes them, is blessed by their ministry, right? commends them for their ministry. But a deacon's service is not only recognized by other members, but by God. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21 tells us that if we work well here, we will hear this commendation from the Lord when we die. Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over little. Now let me set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's motivation to serve well, isn't it? The second reward is this. Deacons gain great confidence or assurance in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. A spiritual service produces spiritual fruit. As you see the Lord working in you to serve others and see him working in them, building them up through your service, your faith is strengthened and grown. And you realize often that you get far more than you've ever given. The deacons are vital to the life of the church. Not only do they provide for great needs through their service, but they model the servant-hearted ministry of our Lord, whose service provided for our greatest need. To our deacons serving now, thank you for your service. Thank you for the way you care for us. May the Lord raise up an army of other faithful servants to serve his body well, that our entire church might flourish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it guides us and instructs us. Lord, give us light, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, that the unfolding of your words might give light and life to your people. 
Lord, we pray that we would all serve as King Jesus served, Lord, that we would model his service. Lord, we pray, Lord, that our church would be blessed for years by faithful servants, faithful deacons serving this body in many ways, Lord, so that we might grow to be more like Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.